What's up, Disrupt Nation? So my name is Anthony Delgado, and this is another episode of the Disrupt Podcast. And today we have a super special guest. Uh, this man is an entrepreneur. He is a media enthusiast. He really has marketing in his DNA, literally. Uh, my, my very good friend, uh, Jason Fisherman. Jason, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Pleasure to be on with you here, Anthony. So for a little bit, uh, for all of you out there who uh, don't know who Jason is, Jason has been a, has 10 years experience as a new media enthusiast who generally, genuinely enjoys um, planning and activities and managing scalable marketing strategies across the full spectrum of verticals and goals. He's an expert in digital channels, including search engine optimization, social media platforms, programmatic ad exchanges, influencer networking, email automation, content marketing, and partnerships. He has held leadership roles at all of the side marketing tables, agency, brand, um, and vendor, which explains his ability to structure unique approaches for DNA clients. Since launching DNA in 2014, Jason and his team have worked with over 200 brands and deliver industry-leading results across e-commerce, lead gen, digital funnel campaigns, and more. Uh, DNA has worked with over 40 reg uh, CF, Reg A, and Reg D, and international ICO campaigns that have produced over $50 million in funding. Wow, Jason, that is a hell of a resume, a hell of a career, and a repertoire. Um, and thank you so much for being on the show. I know that you're also um, a member of the Forbes Technology Council. Um, you've worked with many of the top 100 advisors in the world, um, you know, leveraging traffic algorithms. I mean, you name it. Uh, again, it's the name of your company, DNA, is, um, is so appropriate because you definitely have like marketing and strategy in your DNA. Um, so for all of the people who are out there who are uh, looking up to you and maybe inspiring to build uh, a company like you've established with DNA. Uh, tell us, how did you get started? Yes, and thanks again for having me on that, that warm introduction. Uh, you know, excited to enter the stage with that type of announcement. Uh, I'm a marketer. As it says in my bio, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I actually started as an action sports consultant at a creative marketing agency. So I was working on accounts like Volcom, Nike 6.0, Amp Energy. I grew up here in California participating in action sports. Snow skate surf was even uh, sponsored for, uh, for skating growing up. So I had a strong understanding of the target audiences, the brands, where the whole industry was going. Some of my early campaigns there were very successful. Worked on a video sharing platform that built up its user base. Uh, to strong enough levels to where they were acquired based off our first activations together over uh, the first six months of the campaign. I moved on to campaigns and other verticals, including telecom, uh, entertainment, worked on some of the large hip-hop campaigns here in LA, um, fashion, fashion e-commerce, eco-conscious brands really emerging at that point, and uh, you know, represented some of those as well. Uh, on both digital and physical activations. From there, with that experience, moved over to a traditional agency called the Focus Group, was part of the new business team there, which meant 
not only was I able to, you know, work on these different marketing strategies, but I would pitch uh, new concepts, new plans that were then activated across a full spectrum of digital uh, and traditional marketing channels, including product placements, experiential and event marketing, broadcast media, broadcast radio, out-of-home billboards, really started getting a feel for all the different touch points. One of our clients was a social gaming startup. We actually helped them on their fundraise. It was some of my early experiences with fundraising campaigns. We set up their full packaging, including their investor deck, materials, assets. We were asked to participate in some of the investor meetings to speak to the marketing strategy we had built uh, around the user acquisition and monetization model. That's really when I started learning these traffic algorithms in depth and determining what it would cost uh, to bring on a user, what the lifetime value was there, and all of the margins associated. Uh, they were successfully fundraising. They were su successfully uh, hitting their $3 million goal uh, in that round. And we, we were, the whole department was actually acquired. So I was then leading an in-house marketing team for a social gaming startup. Uh, they were looking to acquire an advertising sales firm, ended up merging. At that point, the games were backed up in development and our, our marketing strategies were complete. Audience building was taking place. And long story short, I moved over to the advertising sales side uh, after being an account executive and bringing on new accounts, was asked to build out the product marketing division. This is when I really learned the game of ad tech because it gave me the opportunity to work with top publishers, figure out the best ad placements that we could then productize and roll out to uh, major advertisers. In doing so, built out a mobile ad network, leveraging tablets and mobile interactive placements uh, across print publications on their mobile and tablet editions, then brought on addition, additional premium inventory through those uh, publisher business development conversations and uh, got a, a strong understanding of what worked and what didn't work for major advertisers across automotive, travel, finance, e-commerce, theatrical and home entertainment film releases. We were working with a lot of the largest advertisers or at least speaking with them. So with that knowledge, I was asked to partner in DNA, digital niche agency, and do the same thing for startup to mid-stage brands, which for me is a lot more exciting, a lot more rewarding. If you do a successful campaign for a top <laughs> telecom company, yeah, you're just another vendor. You may get considered for the next proposal process, the next RFP. Maybe they'll uh, buy you like a fruit basket or something. Yeah. <laughs> I got a few of those in after hitting performance benchmarks. So uh, the flip side, now we're directly part of those uh, of our clients' growth, the budget scale, the traction, and the audience we're able to reach scales along with that. So the performance just continues to grow. As you mentioned, we've worked with over 200 brands since uh, incorporating in January of 2014. We have found a, a niche in fundraising. So uh, reward equity and crypto crowd sales have really been a strong part of what we do. We have a unique portfolio there and are always looking to become a bigger part of that community. Absolutely. So uh, we, we met recently at the World Crypto Conference in Atlantic City. Uh, really amazing event. Um, I, I got to meet a, a very 
uh, large group of, of influential people in the space. And one of the things, one of the words that kept coming up over and over again was due diligence, due diligence, due diligence. There's a lot of snake oil in this ICO space. Um, so make sure that you really vet out um, the people that you're dealing with before you make an investment. So in this space, it's such an emerging space. I'm so like my mother was buying Bitcoin when it was a dollar. Um, so I, I'm very enthusiastic about the space. But in, uh, you know, with any large success, you do have kind of these, um, uh, it's like this gold rush that's happening. So what do you think uh, determines a successful ICO? Uh, from uh, something that could be, uh, you know, considered like a snake oil or fool's gold or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said it with due diligence. The traders that we work with uh, on the investing side, the funds, the different types of financial groups and organizations, whether it's on the legal side or finance, they all recommend for investors to do heavy due diligence so, you know, you hear everyone talk about evaluating the team, the product, the industries they're looking to disrupt, the, uh, you know, the full landscape around it, the, the history of all the team members, the projects they're involved with now, the speculation from third parties, if they do have public anchor investors or groups that are leading the rounds, whether it's, uh, you know, particularly on the private sales side, these are all great things to look at. Uh, I mentioned I came from offline raises, so having an understanding of the use of proceeds, the milestones, mm. and, and even the timelines around the, 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 the development of, uh, of their technology, how they look to really distribute it on the marketing side, that's definitely something I dive in there to see if it's realistic. But being able to then look at that, uh, I mentioned third parties, if there's some trusted sources that uh, you research, whether it's on the, the publisher side or influencer side, if you see that they're constantly recommending wins uh, or are at least good companies that have a strong foundation, uh, you know, maybe not hitting uh, the, the, uh, the, the projected returns, but still operating smoothly as a company, uh, those, those can be very valuable. There's some different telegram groups, some different email newsletters as well. Some of them are even paid where if you subscribe to them, they'll, they'll give you some good tips, some good picks each month to look at. And if you get involved in a pre-ICO stage, maybe in a private sale, if that company goes on to have a successful public uh, ICO, you're going to be in a good position. We really don't advise on that as much. We, we speak strictly to the marketing side. So we look to have everything set up as strong as possible for pre-ICOs. So that once it hits that initial offering, they're set up for success. Absolutely. So over your uh, the last 10 years of your career, you really have seen the market shift as far as advertising and marketing and media from print to now um, what, what many people are calling like the death of the newspaper, the death of the magazine, right? And all of the attention and focus uh, really going online. Like even um, traditional television stations are are struggling to compete with like views on YouTube and, and Facebook, et cetera. So what challenges, I, I feel like my, my gut instinct is that 
the rules haven't changed. It's just a different ballpark. But what uh, shifts have you seen in the market as far as advertising and media? And how is it different and how is it the same as it was 10 years ago? Sure, sure. Great question. And as I mentioned in my history, we were working with print publishers for their mobile and tablet editions so that they had for the reach of their content, for their distribution across various uh, mediums. And mobile and tablets actually broad. There's a whole world of different devices. Uh, when you look at historical devices and popular uh, technology in different markets across the world, so there are you know, a whole uh, full spectrum of different touch points that need to be evaluated on the publisher side and that can be leveraged on the marketing side. 10 years ago, digital could still have been looked at as the wild, wild west. Mobile, at best, was at that stage. So the, the world of analytics, the ability to optimize based off performance metrics in those analytics, has really changed the game. When talking about video distribution, as you, you were mentioning, a company can get uh, more numbers than they would be able to on traditional formats, which are often limited towards reach, uh, maybe frequency, and different audience demographics. We can actually see A-B tests of various audiences, measure the performance of them against each other, and reallocate the pacing, the daily spends, to the segments that are performing best. So as a marketer, that alone is a world of difference. Uh, I mentioned the full array of different mediums. So if we're looking at social, social advertising alone, Facebook and Instagram being the behemoth there, leveraging placements on Twitter, Reddit, Quora, LinkedIn, YouTube, can be looked at as a search as well since it's bought from AdWords, but YouTube and other video platforms. There, there's so many different touch points there. My, my philosophy across all of this is becoming more and more of my tagline or the main thing that I could recommend on the marketing side are these three words, uh, test, optimize, scale. That's our approach towards marketing. So we're trying to set up the right tests across any of these touch points. So I mentioned social, whether it's on the search side, whether it's display banners, native ads, or video across major media websites or apps. We want to set up the right tests to give us the right data so that we can have the right uh, actions, the right optimizations to improve the client's performance. Publishers are playing a big role in this piece as well, too. So this isn't limited just to marketing, but that's the, the biggest difference in marketing today versus 10 years ago is those abilities and what it opens up for all sides of the table. Absolutely. What's one of the most interesting use cases that you've seen of uh, customers, and you don't have to say any names, but customers or clients uh, taking data and analytics and actually changing their strategy based on that? Sure. Sure. So it's important to cast a wide net. I could give you an example of, of publisher alignments and strategy changing actually from a women's fashion e-commerce brand. And they thought, you know, they were going to get the strongest performance on fashion sites from fashion influencers, women lifestyle influencers. 
when we were running a programmatic advertising campaign, meaning we were using machine learning technology on an ad exchange. Ad exchange allows us to buy ads at a wholesale rate and optimize uh, every millisecond. We were actually seeing the best performance on real estate sites. Now we were able to look at the psychographics and the whole user journey on why that was occurring. Long, long like the, 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 the simplified version of that is you have a small ticket item next to a larger uh, purchase, which requires a long sales cycle, such as real estate, and there's impulse conversion. Uh, but just a perfect example of, you know, a strategy stating one field of content, one vertical, and then it changing up due to performance. We've seen this heavily on the fundraising side as well, too, where we were anticipating user owners, uh, whether it was an equity crowdfunding campaign or an ICO, we're anticipating investors with an understanding uh, of an industry to participate at the strongest level, later to find that the, the offering was so good and the potential upside was perceived so high that just getting larger investors to the table would do the trick and then finding geolocations and other types of segments of those audiences that are working best. So starting with a wide net is crucial for that so we can let the data tell us where to go and make uh, the next directions from there. Wow, that's amazing. So you guys are taking a multi-channel, uh, like data-oriented approach to solving all of these uh, marketing and advertising problems. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did I hear that you guys are using uh, pay-per-click and uh, Facebook and social uh, advertising platforms to then target investors and get uh, potential ICO and traditional venture capitalist investors um, interested in, in uh, particular startups? And what yes. does an ad campaign like that look like for, for a VC? How do you target a VC? Um, I, I, uh, I, I know in my last role, I was the, the CTO at a um, uh, technology uh, accelerator and I used to get these ads that were like, hey, we know you're a CTO. And they were like kind of creepy. So are you going that direct at venture capitalists and saying, hey, are you a venture capitalist between the ages of 35 and 45? Click here. <laughs> or are you uh, just building brand awareness and trying to get them to like engage organically? There's classier messaging to use. But yes, we're essentially <laughs> targeting. <laughs> we're targeting based on uh, demographics that include household income, net worth, investor behavior, and job title. So I'll reemphasize Facebook here. When I was at the mobile ad network, we would sell against Facebook, and arguably their mobile product was not there yet. Over the past three years, it's not only become a focal point of digital advertising, but of digital marketing as a whole. And the data that they have is unique. The placements are high impact. They produce a strong click-through rate as it's you know, smack in the middle of someone's newsfeed between their mom and neighbor's posts about you know, what they're doing that day. It, it, it gets a strong response. As far as ad placements and the full range, the full catalog of them, it's powerful. Uh, and the performance, the third thing there, the performance that it produces, historically, produce, uh, outproduces, out, out, you know, it surpasses what's available on other channels. 
an average click-through rate on a display banner may be 0.1%. One out of a thousand mm -hmm. people who see it are clicking on it. For social, 0.1 is not only an average, I'm sorry, 1% as a whole is not only average, it's modest. We have plenty of campaigns performing at 2%, 3%, 5%, even higher click-through rate levels. It works. And there's over a billion people a day on Facebook. So whoever you're trying to reach is on there. We've been involved in equity crowdfunding since 2014. We were first working on campaigns that were for accredited investors only. An accredited investor is an individual who has over 200K uh, individual income over the past three years uh, and or a million dollars net worth outside of their primary home. Uh, they physically have to go through a KYC, a, a know your client process to be accepted as an investor for a Reg D uh, and a credit investor round, uh, you know, that requires us to do that type of targeting. We've done it on programmatic ex exchanges. We've done it uh, on Facebook. When you talk to a lot, a lot of the equity crowdfunding portals, platforms in the space, they'll tell you this is the strongest driver of their campaigns. Uh, we worked on a campaign called Rayton Solar. Uh, Andy Yakub, Andrew Yakub, was a Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, very genius, for lack of a better word, uh, energy professional, leader, founder, and they, they raised $6.4 on their Reg A campaign on Start Engine, uh, the largest on Start Engine over the past couple of years. Facebook advertising was a key driver for them. We actually have a, a case study put together from our, our metrics there, and a key driver. The acquisition cost they were measuring and then scaling per each investor uh, provided them with scalable channels where they could spend more and produce higher volumes of investors quicker. They had over 4,000 investors on that SEC-approved campaign. We're now wow. seeing a lot of the ITOs use these same filings, Reg D, Reg CF, uh, submitting their Reg A's, which should be uh, approved by the SEC soon here. And that will likely be the the Structure, the infrastructure, the legal filings that ICOs use here in the U.S. Uh, but as long as there's a conversion page, as long as there's a page, the URL that is specific to someone completing an investment, not only can we target people based on investor data, we can track them all the way through the marketing funnel from awareness, conversion to intent, uh, you know, to, to actual purchase uh, from there to peer-to-peer -peer marketing, but uh, to, to purchase and find the acquisition cost of how much it, it is actually uh, required from this brand to bring on more investors. Uh, and then you hear me use this word scale over and over again. That's what really makes the difference. We know we can increase the pacing and produce more new investors, uh, shareholders, token holders, by increasing those budgets. Interesting. That brings uh, another good question up. So recently, there's uh, been a lot of media publicity around Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and Google all banning cryptocurrency ads. Uh, a very good friend of mine, he's actually an ex-Googler, uh, launched a cryptocurrency university that would teach you um, as a software engineer how to create cryptocurrencies. And he's working on it, he's working on it, and then like, a few weeks before he's ready to launch and actually do some marketing, um, you know, the whole band came out where they were banning crypto ads. Um, how has your company kind of got around that? Uh, and what do you think the solutions are for, for companies uh, in that position? 
Excellent question. So we are running cryptocurrency ads today. Uh, there are ways to compliantly do so, particularly focusing on the technology versus the offering and removing any words that Facebook triggers. Uh, we've worked with uh, reps over there to figure out the, the right ways to do this. They do not allow ads around ICOs. Again, if you're talking about technology and that technology is uh, on a different site running a, an ICO, you can get around what, it a bit. What, what about the word process? What about the word decentralized? I was thinking about this in my head. And it's like, oh, that's probably, uh, you know, every time someone says it's the decentralized this or the decentralized that, you know, the ICO pitch is coming uh, soon after. <laughs> yes, decentralized double ledger technology. I've seen a lot of these used. The key is you have to continue to resubmit them and work with your Facebook reps to figure out the best ways to run these ads compliantly. They actually do have an application process now. We're working with some cryptocurrency events and doing some promotions of those and submitting to that application process and getting approvals around that. Blockchain technology as a whole, they're not banning at this point, but it does have to be approved via application. There's plenty of professionals, either on the consulting side, agencies, what have you, who can advise about this in further detail as well too. I always recommend bringing someone like that to the table with extensive experience running fundraising campaigns on Facebook rather than trying to learn it. Uh, there's a lot of advantages, including vetted data that uh, those type of groups, including us, could bring to the table. From a technology standpoint, it actually seems uh, kind of odd and, and almost uh, anti- uh, anti-freedom, anti-open source, um, you know, anti-American to, to kind of dumb it down, <laughs> simplify it a little bit, to block a company solely on the software that they're using to deliver their company. Like I, I can see like an ICO, like, hey, we don't want anyone soliciting uh, investors for an ICO uh, without being accredited or approved. That makes sense. Um, but like that would be like, banning JavaScript, like, hey, if your app's using JavaScript on the back end or Python or PHP, right, we don't want any PHP developers uh, marketing their stuff. Like, it's almost none of Facebook's business how the company, um, like, powers their technology on the back end. Um, so uh, it, it would be interesting to see, like, what the rules and, and kind of regulations are um, uh, around those things. What, what do you feel about Facebook's stranglehold uh and again i'm kind of framing it there <laughs> by calling it a stranglehold but but their their dominance on the marketing space uh like you mentioned they were kind of a, a non-contender like a really a really um distant third place a while back and now they're really just kind of this top dog omnipresent uh marketing being and uh then with their acquisitions of of facebook uh, acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp, you really can't even use uh, a social network or a communication device without touching their software. Um, so uh, what do you think that's going to do for the whole marketing landscape? Um, do you think that ads will eventually become overpriced on Facebook? And then what do you think the ramifications are of that like down the line? Sure, sure. 
So, you know, a lot of parts to that, uh, that question there, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about Facebook ad technology. <laughs> We're not. Well, and by, and by the way, or... I, I don't want to, it's kind of harsh. Like, I don't want to come out like I'm bashing Facebook. I think their ad platform is actually amazing. It's an amazing way. And it's way more democratic than, say, having to get a Super Bowl ad, right? Like a Super Bowl ad was completely unattainable. And now, like, any kid with $100 can, like, get $100 worth of advertising from Facebook. So there, there are benefits to it. Um, and, and a lot of people that I know, myself included, have, have generated uh, large amounts of, of wealth using Facebook advertising. So it's not to bash it, um, but uh, to speak more to like the monopolization to, you know, this, this point of Facebook is the only way to get in front of customers. And, and I'll give you like maybe another, another little carrot of a question. Um, like is SEO dead? Like at what point does Facebook advertising completely dominate Google's um, advertising uh, in its effectiveness? You know, you mentioned earlier the percentages of people seeing banner ads. I don't think every impression should even constitute someone seeing a banner ad because there's banner ad blindness, right? Like people go on what websites, they know what an ad looks like. They know what that, uh, you know, uh, 720 by 90, whatever the ad spec is. And our eyes are trained to ignore them. Um, so, you know, at what point is, is Facebook completely going to, uh, make, uh, Google ads irrelevant and, you know, what does that monopolization do to the market and how can marketers kind of protect themselves um, uh, so that they're not 100% relying on Facebook ads? Sure, sure. So, you know, you started out asking about why cryptocurrency ads would be blocked on Facebook, uh, looking at comparisons of Facebook and Google in that question as well, too. Google, uh, Facebook's positioning in the ad tech world and then even future looking to see, you know, where it's going to go from here. You know, to, to round up all of those in one answer, the technology is predictive in nature, meaning Google is looking at people who are typing in a very specific keyword. They're looking for something now. Facebook gives you the ability to target people based on their demographics that don't know what they, they don't know they want your service, your offering, but based on that information, you can direct them towards it. Facebook was a major tool used in, you know, the government uh, presidential election and has even been uh, accused of uh, moving the election. So that, that's part of the reason why they uh, played a, a leadership role in blocking cryptocurrency ads. They didn't want to be a target for that. but it demonstrates the power of this platform. It shows what publishers have the ability to do and the need for verification around uh, fake news type content because of what it can uh, really drive people towards, ed educate people towards. This type of technology can, I I've seen effectively used towards investor acquisition and having publisher pages, in some cases where the clients create their own publisher page directed towards their target audience uh, to drive them through a funnel that then uh, you know, inspires people to convert, convert on something that they had no intention to do earlier that day. So that, that's why it's such a different, a different approach than Google. It's still only doing about a 
third of what Google does in terms of ad revenue a year. But, you know, I think it's over, I was told it was over 30 billion this year that Facebook will do in ad revenue. So not a bad chunk, you know, Well, and, way. and I think a lot of that is honestly due to the slow market adoption of, uh, bureaucratic enterprises so i feel like a lot of the enterprises like finally got their google ad budget to get close to television budgets and just as they've shifted their budget to google now facebook is is um uh, providing to be a lot more effective but large enterprises are not agile enough to actually shift their their big spend um, marketing budgets. But I would speculate that a lot of the money that's going uh, down the drain on uh, Google pay-per-click could actually be better spent um, on Facebook targeting um, to take the soccer mom approach, right? I can target a soccer mom on Facebook every time she logs into Facebook to buy my minivan. If I'm targeting on Google, I can only do it when she's looking for a minivan. Right, so I can actually show her the minivan mm-hmm. before she even knew she wanted a new minivan. I can actually show her that ad on Facebook, whereas in Google I can't. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I don't think I, if I had to make a prediction, I would say in the next um, five to ten years that you'll see that that number switch where Google is probably a third and kind of on the way out. Um, yeah. And, and Facebook and other social type of platforms um, are, are on the rise. I mean, that's why Google was trying so hard and, and desperately to get Google Plus off the ground because they saw this coming and they knew they had to get more data about their users. But traditionally, Google is this kind of white box, just give me my search results and leave me alone type of a network where you're not really giving Google a lot of, a lot of your data. Uh, the closest thing that they have to a social network, honestly, is YouTube. And um, while it's an amazing platform for content creators, uh, they haven't done a very good job at socializing that platform. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. And they could always acquire, uh, as they've done, you know, for, for YouTube, for other platforms. So they could always, you know, build relevancy. Google did a big change of their products this year. Their programmatic platform, DoubleClick, is, uh, and AdWords and all of their platforms are all being put under one brand now. Uh, they're trying to make uh, that more succinct. So, you know, there's no telling exactly where it'll go, but you can see the trends and you can see targeting with data on someone's newsfeed is powerful. I mean, when you look at uh, any line, go to the bank, line at a restaurant, anytime someone's waiting for a few minutes, they're scrolling through their phone. You know, I'd, I'd argue that uh, social platforms are a big uh, destination for them at, at those moments. So if brands are continuing to reach them and the frequency is there everywhere they go throughout their day, uh, you, could, you could, you know, perceive the value and look at the performance that may be associated with the marketing campaign there. Definitely. I mean, I, I think to sum it up, like every click and every view and every eyeball isn't created equally, right? And, uh, you yeah. know, a view on, a, on an ad, uh, you know, especially like a banner ad uh, is, is so, so much ignored uh, and, and so 
I don't even want to say negative, but it's almost like it's like a non-issue. Like people are not paying attention to banner ads anymore. They know what those things are and, you know, the kind of sponsored content that comes through and even to bring it full circle, influencer marketing, right? And sponsorships from your favorite Instagrammer or your favorite YouTuber where now it's the guy that I follow every day and he's telling me to buy the Canon camera. So now since he's actually explaining it to me, I want to buy it more. Um, and you look at influencers uh, like Unbox Therapy. They've they've done deals with HP, multi million dollar deals uh, in influencer marketing, and then thought leadership marketing. And I know you're a member of the Forbes Council. Um, where okay, I saw my brand featured in Forbes, uh, and they were on the top three list. Uh, you know, we recently got um, one of the companies that we advise on on a uh, the top three messaging uh, platforms, uh, encrypted messaging platforms. The app's name is Modi. And uh, I feel like that mention in an article is almost worth way more than like a million eyeballs looking at a banner ad because the banner ad, they know that it's paid for and uh, a piece of content marketing or a piece of thought leadership marketing or influencer marketing, it's more earned and it's from a trusted source. So, you know, you would almost be better off having uh, an influencer, having a thousand people see an influencer that they know and trust present the product versus a million people see a banner ad and they just completely ignore it because, um, because they don't trust the source. Right. And you kind of alluded to that earlier with the, uh, you know, you're scrolling through the newsfeed and it's like, you know, your mom and uh, your daughter's graduation and then this ad and it's, and it's uh, natural and it's organic. So you actually give more trust to it, even though in actuality it is just a, is a purchased ad. Um, so, so what do you think the impl- implications of thought leadership marketing and influencer marketing are um, and the value of that um, as opposed to like a traditional pay-per-click um, or, or, a, or a Facebook social ad? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like the quote, not all clicks are created equal. That's great. Uh, you know, it's all about a full overarching strategy. We try not to launch anything without having an understanding of how one channel is going to interact with the next. We have it broken out from organic and paid media. Uh, organic uh, can, be, can be separated. Portions of organic can be separated out of earned media there, too. And, yeah, third-party validators positioning a brand as a thought leader work well. If I say I'm a great marketer, it doesn't mean as much as if, a major tech publisher says that. Uh, same with our clients. If they say we have the best token offering ever, it doesn't mean as much as if you know a major crypto influencer, major publisher says it, maybe a mainstream uh, publisher says it. So that all gets taken into account. Uh, there are vanity, ego type placements and placements that are more performance based, meaning I've seen articles published by major websites. I've seen brands appear on a, you know, major broadcast television stations and see little traffic, little conversions to follow. So that goes back to that test optimized scale and actually looking at the analytics to tell you what to do more of. But uh, at the same time, I've seen stuff surpass the, the expectations we had in mind. So it's really a matter of figuring out what's actually producing the results for you. Yes, having third-party validators is going to, you know, work at a stronger level. Uh, you don't need to see, you know, end game conversions. You don't need to see investor conversions. 
uh, actual investments placed at each stage of the funnel. So you can look at different channels for audience building, for engagement, for uh, you know contextual value. Some of the placements can be merely positioning the brand as a thought leader. Uh, again, you know, the well, power I, of that I think is that's, huge. I think that's kind of where it gets a little bit tricky with being data driven and and purely analytical driven. Um, and I'll give you an example, and and I want you to like kind of close your eyes for a second and pretend you're you're in the investor, you're in the customer's shoes, right? So you you see a pay per click ad, or you or you see a news feed like a social feed, some sort of video or advertisement, and you go and you check out the brand, and then the second thing that you do before you invest is you are going to Google the brand. Um, so to answer the question that I kind of alluded to earlier, like is SEO dead? No, it's just changing. Um, so at some point. Before this person makes an investment, they're going to do some sort of research and due diligence. So where that maybe CNN interview only has a few hundred um, eyeballs, right, um, or a few hundred clicks, the who is watching it, who those few hundred people are, could be the decision makers in their final stage of analysis Um looking for validation or invalidation of whether or not they should make some sort of purchasing decision, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's hard to quantify that. I think it's really, really hard with analytics um, to quantify some of those things. I mean, I know, I know there probably are ways that hypothetically, if the guy was on the same device, you might be able to track that stuff with, with um, like cookies and tracking pixels and stuff. But, um, but in general, I feel like it, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out the ROI on, on some of these thought leadership campaigns. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times with like an Instagram ad, maybe there's no swipe. I like now there's the swipe up for, for a while. There was just like that one link in the bio. So I I feel like it's hard a lot of times to quantify uh, some of these untraditional forms of marketing. And I think that's why people don't do them more. Um, so, So how do you, uh, do you recommend those types of campaigns for your clients? And when you do, and they're like, okay, well, where are the numbers? Uh, you know, how do you justify those types of um, actions that aren't as traditional as, um, as you know, looking at a spreadsheet um, full of analytics? Sure, sure. So when we're building a strategy, we put together projections associated with timelines for every activation. Starting with organic, we want to have a plan in place. If you don't, uh, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So we want to have an idea what every channel is going to produce. Media buying, obviously easier algorithms there. And, uh, you know, we really want the analytics to tell us where to go from there, where to optimize through that approach. We've hit uh, industry-leading performance across these different verticals. Uh, you know, including reward, equity, and crypto crowd sales, as well as e-commerce, user acquisition, lead generation initiatives. So, you know, we're always looking at the numbers. We're always looking at the algorithms. I've seen brands bring an influencer to the table and put all of their eggs in that, that one basket, assuming that's going to deliver all of their marketing goals. Mm, Simply not the absolutely. case in my experience. So, uh, you know, we want to have structures in place. So we can measure how these campaigns are doing, optimize accordingly, uh, options to test beyond that. And again, looking for those different uh, pockets of performance to scale. We really want to find the meat of it. Where are we getting the numbers from? Maybe we're testing 10 things, but only one of them are actually producing conversions. 
So we can continue to spend either, you know, monetary resources or time and all 10 of those things. But if we're able to identify where it's coming from, we can do more justice for the client. Definitely. No, that makes perfect sense. Like really hitting it from all angles, testing, seeing what's working um, and what's not, and then doubling down. And I, I mean, the other thing to, I guess, keep in mind is, you know, once you have that shout out from Gary V, once you have that article in um, the Wall Street Journal, like those little pieces of social proof are not things that have to necessarily be repeated, right? So you can have that one feature in Forbes and, and you can kind of ride that for, <laughs> for the next couple of years, right? And say, hey, we were featured in Forbes. Um, so maybe not looking at those things as, um, as so much traffic generating tools, um, but more as like strategic positioning um, for a brand to ensure that they now when you do throw a, a, a ton of traffic at them through more traditional means of, of advertising and marketing um, that that social validation is there for the people that do dig uh, a little deeper um, that that makes a lot of sense earlier you were speaking about um, about the presidential election and you know the influence of social media and Facebook in particular on uh, politics and pres- presidential until, um, uh, presidential elections. There were talks and kind of rumors after Trump had won that Mark Zuckerberg was going to run for president. Do you think that Mark Zuckerberg should be allowed to run for president, or do you feel like that's a conflict of interest? <laughs> Great question. I usually don't advise on uh, these type of uh, topics, but, you know, without getting too political, the U.S. showed a strong response to uh, an entrepreneur, business owner candidate. So I definitely think that opens up the the stage for, you know, there's been other rumors around Mark Cuban and other types of uh, business pioneers, thought leaders. The Rock, Oprah. Yeah, yeah, Kanye. So, uh, so you know, again, I, I'm a marketer, not a political analyst, <laughs> but I'm definitely, I'm definitely open to it. I think he should be allowed. Uh, All right, love to hear what he has to say, and <laughs> would be interested on his stance on some of the political issues. Hopefully, he doesn't bring too much proprietary data to the conversation. <laughs> All right, nice Zuckerberg for president. I love that. <laughs> Zuck for president. All right, cool. Um, and if you and have him on the show, I will listen. Absolutely. Well, I'm gonna get him now. I'm gonna get his response to your endorsement for uh, for president. For him. <laughs> um, <laughs> last question. Uh, what does disrupt mean to you? Wow, that's a that's a great thing to uh, evaluate here. You know. In some communities, the word startup is actually a bad thing. I've been advised in some scenarios to not use that in terms of describing the focus of our company. The reason I, you know, campaign for it is there are better opportunities for the public, for audiences to be provided from the, the uh, you know, market share leaders of every industry. And whether that disruption occurs from product launches or rebrands or any type of repositioning from the top players in any of these industries, or whether that disruption occurs 
from startups and having a, a new approach, something that's new or different gets attention. It gets a response. It gets traction. It can get a large audience, a large following fairly quickly. So to me, that's what it's all about. And it means a, a new or different way of doing things that improves the traditional process. That, that's what disruption is all about. That's what we seek out as an agency to be a part of for any of these industries. That's what we strive for as marketers and hopefully thought leaders in the space. And, uh, you know, that's why we uh, align with what you guys are doing and you know, uh, speak about it highly. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing in the space, uh, where should they go? Sure. So our website, digitalnicheagency.com, niche is N-I-C-H-E. You'd be surprised on how many times I have to spell that. <laughs> but uh, digitalnicheagency.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jason Fishman. I have a big beard in my uh, photo there. Uh, so that's, uh, that's uh, Jason Fishman uh, on LinkedIn. I'm going to have uh, my own podcast launching in about a month or so here. So there'll be updates uh, on LinkedIn and uh, on our different social channels accessible from our website there. I'm going to have a series of content coming out on Forbes, uh, being part of the Forbes Agency Council. We are speaking on a series of upcoming events. can mention a few of those. I understand, uh, you know, this is, uh, you may be listening to this at a later time, but we're speaking uh, at Hybrid Summit, Token Fest, World CryptoCon, Go Block Con, have a, a list of other pending uh, shows in the next coming, uh, next couple months here as well, too. So uh, whether it's a, a keynote or a panel, um, great if you're able to catch any of those. And, uh, you know, please feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn and connect from there. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, really appreciate your your insights and, and your generous sharing about your career and your experience and the clients you've worked with and your perspective on the market. And yeah, I, I look forward to, uh, to seeing you at Token Fest. And uh, for everyone else out there, uh, Disrupt Puerto Rico uh, is our event that we're planning for September 19th. So if you don't know, now you know. Uh, head on over to uh, Disrupt.Digital and get your tickets. And there will also be links to how to connect with Jason and how to uh, attend that event uh, in the show notes. And for everyone out there in the Disrupt Nation, uh, signing off. And Jason, thank you again for being on the show, brother. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure.